Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Turkey is a member of NATO, but under Mr. Erdogan, it no longer subscribes to the values that underpin this great alliance. So wrote former Senator Joseph Lieberman in a recent Wall Street Journal essay, which argued that if Turkey were applying for NATO membership today, it would fail several qualification criteria. What is to be done then about NATO's closest frenemy? My guest today is the founding director of the Middle East Institute's Turkey program and a senior fellow for the Frontier Europe Initiative. She is also an adjunct professor at George Washington University and an author of the upcoming book Erdogan's War, A Strongman's Struggle at Home and in Syria. Welcome to the bunker, Gönül Toll. Thank you, Alex. It's good to be here. Gönül, it is impossible to talk about Turkey's foreign policy, or I should say Turkey, since Turkey moved to change its name internationally to how Turks say it. It is impossible to talk about Turkey's foreign policy without reference to the personality that has dominated Turkish politics for 20 years, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Is it fair to say that there is early Erdogan and late Erdogan, and the two are really quite different politicians. Well, Alex, it's a it's a great question, and and I think uh, the way you answer that question depends on which uh, analytical lens that you look at the question. When Erdogan came to power and the ruling AKP came to power in in two thousand two, he was a different man, or so he said. He said, "I'm not an Islamist anymore." He defined his new political identity and his party's identity, political identity, as a conservative Democrat. And he came at a time when that really resonated well among Turkish public because the 1990s were a lost decade. There were problems with the economy. Terrorism, uh, the PKK terrorism had peaked. There were several coalition governments. There was a lot of problems with the country's human rights record. So many people saw Erdogan's rise as uh, the stability that they had been looking for. Hmm. And he was an Islamist-rooted politician, but he his main campaign promise was uh, to make Turkey a, an EU member. He ran on a very pro-reform agenda, yes. and he promised stability. And that really um, um, made people believe in his promise of a more a prosperous, wealthy, and, and democratic country. And he delivered on many of those fronts. Hmm. But things hmm. changed starting from late 2010 and early 2011. Yeah, so it was because initially for the first three terms, he was prime minister. And right. then... And then he sort of forced a constitutional change that would give a lot of powers to the office of president, which had been more ceremonial before that. And it's when he switches to president that I sense the persona change to that of a much more authoritarian strongman. Is that is that a, a fair summary? I think there are several factors that played a role in that change. And one of them, obviously, we can never know whether he was an authoritarian at heart all along. 
constantly to his critics, even when he said that he was not an Islamist anymore, his critics thought that he was an Islamist in disguise, using the EU membership and the pro-reform agenda to take advantage of, of, of uh, Turkish democracy, establish a one-man rule. That was their contention. But if you ask me, I think there were uh, s- several factors involved that can explain the change in Erdogan's reform uh, zeal. And one of them was the institutional setting of the country. When Erdogan came to power, there were different uh, groups that could really counter counterbalance him. Military was one of them. So when he first came to power, Erdogan pursued a very cautious policy. He, even on the day of the AKP's election, he promised the critics, the secularist critics, that he would not focus on the previous Islamist party's Islamist agenda. He hmm. would not really consider things like lifting the, the headscarf ban or things that were important to his, con- to his conservative constituents as things that were his priority. So he, he, he promised that he would work on making Turkish democracy a functioning one. That was his yeah. promise. And he stuck to that promise because that's how he managed to rally the support of secularists, even liberals and and left-wing parties behind his agenda. So he went well beyond the traditional Islamist constituency and he appealed to the segments of the country that that would be otherwise reluctant to support mm. an Islamist-rooted politician. And it was all thanks to his pro-reform agenda and his promise to make Turkey an EU member. So why did he pursue that pro-reform policy? I think that's the key question. And I think in retrospect, when you look at what he did in, in, that, in that process, I think his main goal all along was to consolidate his power. And he could not afford to have a direct clash with the military, with the secularist establishment. So the unity, so the unity agenda was a sort of Trojan horse for what he wanted to pursue later down the line. That's right, because the only way for him to secure the backing of unlikely groups such as uh, secularists and, and liberals was to appeal to them with a pro-reform and pro-EU agenda, and it worked mm-hmm. brilliantly. So things ch- changed in 2011. So what happened in 2011? By 2011, all those small steps that, that he took until uh, 2011, made sure that he consolidated power. He mm. slowly and cautiously sidelined the secularist establishment, including the judiciary and the military, thanks to that wide-ranging alliance, pro, uh, pro-democracy alliance that he secured. In 2011, he, he had consolidated power, and that's when his, both his narrative and his, his strategy changed. Hmm. Now, can you solve a very practical point for my listeners? There is a notional two-term limit for uh, a Turkish president in the constitution. So why is everyone talking about Erdogan uh, trying to win a third term next year? Because unfortunately, institutions do not matter in today's Turkey anymore. (laughs) 
it has become a one man, I wouldn't call it a dictatorship because there are still elections and they can be competitive, although it's really the, the playing field is not fair. But it has become what political scientists call a competitive authoritarian regime. Yes, I've heard that. I've heard that term. It means that there is an opposition, but mm-hmm. that basically it suffers a huge structural disadvantage in trying to overthrow the, the status quo. But I have also read many knowledgeable commentators suggest that the notion that elections in Turkey are not free and fair is a little overplayed in Western media. Is there truth in that? Where are you in between those two schools of thought, as it were? Well, I think until 2015, if you ask me what I thought about elections held in Turkey, I would say that I wasn't worried. But in 2015, something happened. Turkey held elections in June of that year. And thanks to the strong showing of the pro-Kurdish party, which captured a historic 13% of the vote, AKP, the ruling AKP, lost its parliamentary majority. Hmm. And that was a huge blow to Erdogan and his party. And instead of accepting the election results, Erdogan called for a rerun, a snap elections in November. And in a matter of few months, he unleashed the most chaotic era in Turkish Turkey's history. Hmm. Right after his party lost elections, he ended the ceasefire that had been in place for, for two years with the PKK. We started seeing ISIS bombings, terror campaigns that killed hundreds of people. So he pitched himself as the candidate for peace and stability. So he told the voters, "You, this is an election between me and chaos. Hmm. And enough voters were convinced. So he secured the parliamentary majority in a, in a matter of few months. So I think that was the first red flag. And the second one was in 2017. That was when Turkey held a referendum to switch the country's parliamentary system from a presidential system. So he won by a, a narrow margin, but there were widespread allegations of fraud. And la- lastly, in 2019, Turkey held local elections, municipal elections, and Erdogan's party lost almost all major cities. But particularly difficult for him to accept was his loss in Istanbul. Istanbul is the place where Mm. he launched his political career. And he famously said, if you lose Istanbul, you lose Turkey. That's exactly right. So it was very difficult for him to accept defeat there. So he called for a rerun. And he lost by even a bigger margin. So (laughs) all those things tell me that I'm not comfortable that these elections will be completely free and fair. But that's one thing that gives me hope. And that is, in 2019, the opposition parties did a great job protecting the ballot box. They mobilized thousands of volunteers, students, party members to protect the ballot box. So I, I'm, I'm hoping to see that in uh, again in 2023. Hmm. Now, uh, uh, Gönül, as a Greek, I, I am, I guess, more in touch with Turkish news than most 
Westerners, but I'm also aware that the news I get is quite biased. Notwithstanding that, there have been many occasions when people looking into Turkey from outside have thought, that's it. He's done now. You know, a, a feeling with which the British public is becoming very familiar now. For instance, when there was significant evidence of corruption, including, I remember a recording of his son-in-law literally selling government contracts. Yet, there's no denying that he's still very popular. Why is that? that that's a great question, Alex. And and not just Westerners, outsiders, but Turks are are, are struggling with that question. <laughs> and, and I think here is the answer. It might not be a, a perfect answer, but I think this is this is what it is about. Because obviously if you look at a- anywhere in the world, voters mostly vote on on economy. That's their number one worry. And Turkish economy is is in a horrible state. There's more poverty. There's more un- unemployment in inflation. You you could see that on the streets if you if you if you go to Turkey, big cities, even even small ones, you see that in 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 people's everyday lives. And and that economic crisis hit Erdogan's own base particularly hard. And there are also other problems. The n- the number two worry of of voters before twenty nine elections was the number of Syrian refugees living in Turkey. There are almost 4 million of them. And there is a growing discontent, nationalist backlash, even from diehard Erdogan supporters. So given Mm. all that, why do people, why does he still have 35-40% support? And I think the question, the, the, the answer lies in Turkey's historical, cultural cleavages. The country is polarized along cultural lines, I think. You have this rural, conservative segment of the country, and they are religiously conservative, and you have urban, educated, modernized, uh, secular, uh, secularized. So the first group, which have overwhelmingly supported Erdogan, they think that they have been marginalized by the the founding secularist elite of the country that they had been kept out of the levers of power for decades. <laughs> I mean, their guy their guy has been in power for twenty years. How how marginalized could they feel? <laughs> yes, you would ask, and yet still, public opinion surveys reveal that they still feel that they are the victims of. <laughs> The, the Kemalist Republic. Hmm. You know, perception is reality, and that's how they perceive themselves. So I think those people have a connection beyond material interests to Erdogan. They see him as a hero. They see him as the guy who came and saved the women in hijab from, from the oppression of the Kemalist elite. And also... Hmm. I should note, there are material interests involved as well, because under Erdogan, the economic policies, neoliberal populist economic policies he pursued in his first few terms, lifted millions of people out of poverty. And now there is a, a large uh, middle class, and, and many of them come from the conservative background. So these yeah, people... Yeah. For instance, pools that are only for the catering to the conservative needs of, of this uh, pious 
religious sectors of the country. So they are enjoying a luxury life, living in luxury apartments, driving luxury cars. And they feel like if the opposition comes to power, they will lose all those privileges along Mm. with their religious rights. So I think that creates a strong emotional bond beyond any material consideration. Now, NATO is an alliance that operates broadly by consensus. And I saw someone describe Erdogan in that context as a stick-up artist. Um, So in 2009, he blocked the appointment of the new NATO chief from Denmark, and he took face-to-face promise from President Barack Obama that NATO would appoint a Turk to a leadership position to satisfy him. From the following year, he vetoed the alliance working with the Jewish state for six years. A few years later, he delayed for months a NATO plan to fortify Eastern European countries against Russia, demanding that NATO declare Kurds operating in Syria to be terrorists. In 2020, he skirted around Greek territory, causing France another NATO member, to send ships in support of Greece, also a NATO member. Why does NATO put up with him? Because there is no clause in NATO that allows the alliance to kick out a a member state. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think they would if they could then? (laughs) Look, Alex, I think, as, as, as you laid out, there have been many problems between Turkey and NATO, and those problems have been exacerbated by Turkey's decision to purchase S-400s. I've seen so many articles calling Turkey Russia's Trojan horse in NATO, and we've seen a brief break after the uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Mm. Here in, in Washington on, on the Hill, even members of Congress who had been opposed to selling Turkey F-16s, who had been very critical of Erdogan, started shifting their views in favor of him, saying, well, you know what? In fact, he has done a good job in terms of selling Ukraine drones, curbing Russia's influence, closing the straits after the invasion, closing Turkey's airspace. So maybe we should reconsider. Hmm. So do you think do you think the Ukraine war in general has made it more difficult for Turkey to be on the fence between NATO and R- Russia, and it is leaning? towards NATO at the moment, or has it carved a useful niche for for him as mediator-in-chief? No, I think he really allowed, he boosted Erdogan's image or, or Turkey's image, especially in Western capitals, as mm. an indispensable country. Before he, He's still a problematic leader. Turkey still can ruin uh, many things. But on the other hand, it's right there. And, and the Black Sea region, which was once considered a distraction by, by the U.S., by Western countries, has mm. become the center of attention. Yes, and yes. Turkey is right there playing a very critical role there. So the, so the new thinking in Western capitals is that, yes, it is a problematic partner country, but given what's been happening in Ukraine with Russian aggression, we cannot do anything without Mm. Turkey. So that gives Erdogan leverage. Okay, so let me play devil's advocate for just a moment. Dimitar Bechev, who has written a terrific book called 
Turkey under Erdogan, describes the period under him as an era of missed opportunities. Is there another narrative here? Is there a credible narrative in support of Erdogan that says, by being obstructionist, Turkey has ensured it is actually punching above its weight on the world stage. And if it had been a good little member of NATO, no one would pay any attention to what it wanted or needed. I think there were missed opportunities for sure. And I and I am talking about the European Union Union here and also the secularists at home. I think there are there was a road not taken. If the EU, for instance, Several countries in the European Union, including Germany, if they had, if they did not propose a privileged partnership to Turkey, which is short of full membership, I think that would have really, if, if Turkey's membership to EU was a more credible option, I think you could see a weaker Erdogan. And, and I think the second road not taken was the one by secularists at home. Even two months after Erdogan came to power, Turkish military was threatening him with a, a, a coup. He crossed red lines. So I think all those things, the, the disappointment, remember Erdogan was one of the most enthusiastic Turkish leaders when it comes to Turkey's EU membership in his initial yeah. years. He, he paid his first visit to EU countries just to get a date from the European Union to start membership negotiations mm. because mm. for him that was he was desperate for Turkey to, to become a member because he genuinely thought that if Turkey became a member of the EU then there would be more religious freedom then uh, then the, the military would play a, a less important role it would be a, a democratic country and more democracy meant better chances for him to survive politically. So he genuinely believed in that, but that didn't happen. So that created a, a, a lot of resentment, disappointment, and also anxiety. And then the, the secularist threat. Many times, I mean, the, the, the way how unreasonable the military and the secularist segments of, of, of the country behaved made his anxiety grow more, which led to this paranoid man who had lost the little faith he had in in democratic process. So to play the devil's advocate, if you're saying if there's a a, a missed opportunity here, I would definitely cite those. Mm -hmm. Now, looking ahead, like we said, he lost Istanbul recently to his main political rival, Ekrem Imamoglu, and polls have consistently placed Imamoglu ahead. And there's a big election next year. Do you think his era is coming to an end? I think that question boils down to whether he will tolerate or whether he will risk free and fair elections. Mm. I think that, that that's about that. Because I think if Turkey was to hold free and fair elections today, I think he would lose. Because the problems the country is having at the moment is immense and the, the economic crisis, it, it has hit everyone, every sector, even the business community who, who has stood by him, refrained from criticizing him publicly. They are now out there criticizing. His own supporters are saying that he's, he's the reason why Turkish economy 
is is where it is now. But mm. the problem is, and and public opinion polls show that he, there's there's a huge decline in his popularity. But that decline in his popularity does not translate into a huge win for the opposition. Yes, of there, course. There is a huge chunk of people who are sitting on the fence. They are undecided voters, and the reason for that is that they do not have faith in the opposition's ability to solve Turkey's pressing problems, and the chief among them is the economy. So here, I think, as an answer to your question, I think the opposition today is best placed to win. The, the political context is ripe for an opposition win today. But I would never underestimate the capability of Turkish opposition to mess things up. And and the, te- the second concern I have is, again, if, the, the, if Erdogan loses by a narrow margin, he can always manipulate the results as he has done before, or he can order a rerun. So I think the responsibility here falls largely on the opposition. They have to get their act together. They have to address the pressing problems of the electorate, particularly the economic problems, and they have to protect the ballot box. Hmm. One last question. In 20 years, Erdogan has reversed really most aspects of Kemalism. And and just to explain to listeners, when we talk about Kemalism, we talk about the the policies of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, who is considered the father of modern Turkey. Quite literally, his name means father of Turkey. And he was very keen on education, on secularism, on modernity in general. And Erdogan has pivoted to tradition, to populism, to Islam. But what I want to know is, do you think Kemalist values are quite deeply ingrained in Turkey, which means it will recover quickly when Erdogan goes? Or do you think the scarring is more profound and lasting and it will take a generation to reorient Turkey towards modernity, towards secularism, towards democracy, towards the West? I think Kemalist values and maybe secular secularist values in general, they have grown in importance in the last few years as a response to what those people see as Erdogan's growing Islamism. Uh-huh. I have been following the number of people who go to Anitkabir, that's that's where Atatürk's tomb is in Ankara, and the number is growing every year. And I see that as as the secularist sectors of society's response to Mm. Erdogan's vision for the country, which is a Sunni, Muslim, and authoritarian vision. And I think the most significant reaction to that vision came in 2013 during Gezi protests that really struck Erdogan's regime at the heart. Thousands and thousands of people took to the streets Initially, in response to the demolition of, of, of a park, which was one of the very few green spaces left in Istanbul, mm-hmm. but it grew, it turned into something much bigger. It, it turned into the biggest rejection by the people of Erdogan's authoritarian and Sunni Muslim vision. So I think those values, secularist values, Kemalist values, today they are more relevant and they are being embraced by, by more and more people because they think that they really 
need to counterbalance, that they see that as the only way to undo what Erdogan has done to the country's institutions, to country's democracy, and the idea of secularism. Gunil Tol, thank you so much for your time and for your clarity. My pleasure. Remember, there's a new Bunker Pod every day. The full panel on Tuesdays, your Start the Week Bulletin on Mondays, your Culture Supplement on Saturdays, and daily interviews every day in between. So don't forget to subscribe, review, and rate us. You can also support us directly on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. Ahmed Davutoglu, who served as Prime Minister and leader of the AKP under Erdogan's early presidential years, said of Turkey, It is a European country, an Asian country, a Middle Eastern country, an African neighbor, a Balkan state, a Caucasian country, a Black Sea country, and a Caspian Sea country. All of these at the same time. So perhaps it's not a surprise that its attitude towards all those directions is changeable and ambivalent. Perhaps this is not an aberration, but a feature, and maybe even a useful one. This is Alexandreou in the bunker, saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Alex Andreev. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofronievich and Alex Reese. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.